Hi, I'm John. I'm Genevieve. Hi, I'm Nasser. I'm Alex. And I'm Clay. And this week, in our third special episode, we're going to talk about whether Starfleet's a military and whether that's going to make us quit Star Trek. So, you know, as you may have noticed, there's no Olivia this week because um, she's busy, you know, having a real life, you know, off Twitter, which uh, I think is good for her, I think. I think we can agree that's a good thing. So I brought um, the, the third host of the podcast, Genevieve, with me because, uh, as we know, smarter than all of us. You can't you think... see my face, but I'm making a don't say that motion. You can't say You're the reason this podcast happened. A couple of days ago, you tweeted... Starfleet's a military organization. We basically, Starfleet is military and we need to stop pretending it's not. Yes. Because, yeah. I just don't know what the argument is for it not being a military other than uh, people that don't like the US military like Star Trek. That's like literally the only reason people have. I, I don't know how you actually argue to me that it's not a military. They have military organization and they fight people. <laughs> well, it's sort of like two, I mean, we're going to talk about it, because there's a lot of topics, but I think the, there's two that looks away, which is there's, I'm going to use big words now, because I learned these words last week, and I'm very excited about them, which is there's the, there's the doily and the Watsonian way to look at this. Yes, which I said the words I said I'd say. Within the context of it as a piece of media, yeah, it's a military force, and it does all the functions of that. But then there's a sort of, like, within the universe, the question becomes complicated. And I, I think that's actually the interesting bit, both in the sense of is it a military and why does it matter? Because we, the writers made a deliberate choice to make that complicated. Well, yeah. in, in some ways, it's, it's a reflection of the current tension that exists between space for civilian purposes and space for military purposes, right? And I think, you know, if you go back to the late 60s when Star Trek was being created, there was this real tension within the American space race around this idea of who should be the ones to run it, right? Should it be NASA, a civilian organization, or should it be um, the Department of Defense? And I think what Star Trek is trying to do, now I'm not going to say it's successful at doing this, but I think this is sort of the like, in a perfect world, this was what they wanted it to be, right? Which is the current fear is NASA ultimately gets subsumed within the Department of Defense, right? And all of those civilian functions ultimately give way to the military function. And I think the sort of the idealized version of what Star Trek was tr was trying to say was that the Department of Defense actually gets subsumed within NASA, right? That of course there are those defense functions that are important to the way in which a space, we'll just call it what it is, empire has to function, but that the sort of that we're at a point in our future history where we don't require a full-time military all of the time. We have this, we have this organization that that has these other core functions, right? They tell us that space exploration is supposedly the core function of Starfleet, and that the sort of military pieces of it are the sort of the the bolt-ons, the add-ons, the the other pieces that sort of um, are part of this. Now the way that the writers have sort of taken that and run with it over the course of the show, Nick Meyer, you know, massively militarized Starfleet in Star Trek II, and that has sort of 
um, that legacy has sort of persisted through the rest of the franchise today. But but my sense is that is sort of what it fundamentally comes down to is that tension between the questions around civilian or military control of space and what that looks like. And that Star Trek is sort of stuck in the middle in the same way that we are in, in modern society. Hmm. Yeah, that was um, that was nicely put, Alex. You know, I was, I, I was like, you know, the point here in this is, oh, it's um, it's a Department of Defense one. Yeah, that's wrong by this, but I thank you for hitting it because it was an important <laughs> one. Which is that you're right, especially in 1966, when the Department of Defense every six months goes, how many nukes can we put on the moon? A lot. <laughs> yeah, the answer is as many as we can get. <laughs> um, I wanted to say that, like, is Starfleet military? only when the plot calls for it, which is frequently because the writers are kind of just like, ooh, sci-fi, let's get some like action conflict in there. Like, you know, get the Klingons, the Cardassians, the whoever else, like, you know, it, it's, it's military when they want to be. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's not great. And it means a lot of bad things. You get a lot of military tension and complicated, mm. but also, Balance of terror is one of the best things put to television in history. It makes so, it makes it makes for good conflict on on a television screen in the 1960s. I think mm. where you have you have this organization that, by its very nature, is put into situations where they are going to face conflict. Be that you know uh, fighting or uh, you know talking to people, whatever it is. But they would just be on the forefront of that. So I think that's one of the reasons from a metatextual sense why they would do that, you know, why, why they would choose that. Um, I was going to make my, like, I, I do think that Star Trek is a military. I was going to make my argument for what type of military I think it is. Oh, boy. And um, <laughs> I'm going I'm to pull, I'm going to pull. Being open. Oh, oh it's boy. It's Treconomics. Oh, boy. You pulled out a copy of Treconomics, you know. I have pulled out a copy of Treconomics, so I'm I'm gonna, it's not actually a quote from the book, but it's a quote, it's an Asimov quote pulled at the beginning of the book that I think is pertinent, even if it's related to economics and not military. But it's from iRobot and it is, it no longer seemed important whether the world was Adam Smith or Karl Marx, neither made very much sense under the new circumstances. And so what that quote is saying economically is that whatever paradigm of capitalism or communism that we envision in the 20th century or the 21st century, is irrelevant by the time of the 24th century. That the terms for understanding those systems are no longer applicable because things are so different. And I think you can kind of apply the same idea to the military as it is, as it you know occurs within the United Federation of Planets. It is a military, but it's not really a military in the same way that we've seen militaries arise in human history before now. Um, I think the only comparable military that I could find, and I have the page up here, is the United Nations military. Peacekeepers. Now, peacekeepers, right. And you can, make, you can make an argument, I think, that the United Nations is, can, can be a tool for imperialism of like the, the superpowers of the world. However, at the same time, the United Nations military isn't used for conquest. It isn't used for uh, waging warfare. In the same way that you know the, the armies, the militaries of World War II might have been, you know, um, and so that's that's how I would sort of frame it. It is a military, but it's different than any military that we've seen before in a lot of fundamental ways. 
I think that's a really good analogy, actually, because um, just also thinking about it, because what do like Starfleet and the UN, like the Federation and UN have in common? Well, in some ways, they both kind of enforce like a vague sort of imperialism. The UN more implicitly so, like historically has aided in imperialism, um, like especially in the Middle East. Um, And it's like it's also another thing where it's like it can be military if they want to like they have the resources to do that they just think about the thing about the peacekeepers that's also true of Starfleet is that they could whip your ass if they really wanted to you know just ask the Serbians if the UN wants to whip your ass it will yep but I guess that's the metatextual factor is that the principle of Starfleet is that Starfleet would really will really take every option it can before it will whip your ass. At Think about how long it took of to get text. to the Dominion War. Well, like you were saying, like the Dominion War, they make first contact with the Dominion, and then, then it's about two years before war breaks out. And it's after the Federation had sought all these sort of peaceful outlets before the Dominion just, you know, called all that off and invaded. Um, and so you can kind of see that in a textual sense, like how far they're willing to go to avoid the outbreak of war with a with an expansionist, uh, oppressive, dominating power. Yeah, I mean the Dominion War is an interesting arc in expressive history and military because you get home front and paradise lost, and you get the question. This went at a quest about section 31, and because it's section 31, I'm gonna have a drink because I fucking hate it. Yeah, I'm Dang. gonna need to pour myself a drink for that. Uh, I might, I just, might get myself more drink if I'm allowed to. Um, yeah, you know what? We're talking about for a moment. the worst concept ever port to start. I don't know if anyone disagrees. I mean, I just don't understand why it's in Star Trek, it's not fun. I, I think, I mean, it's there, it works in Deep Space Nine. But DS9, the way it deals with the Starfleet is a military question, because it has, you know, there's a whole Defiant thing, which is that Defiant is Starfleet's purpose-built warship, first ever purpose-built warship. And, um, you know, this is um, another tick on the podcast mantra, because I'm going to have a rant about warships now, which is um, Defiant is not Starfleet's first warship. All right. They're all warships, because their job is to, in a way that, I, you know, you can't, I don't think any comparative force in history or other science fiction has done, which is that because of what Alex said about Starfleet being based on the principle that scientific leadership will be over military leadership. There are a lot of places where military leadership in Starfleet that would be sensible kind of doesn't get done properly. I do have to say it is a little concerning and I'm aware that this is a problem that just happens because it makes... uh, plot lines more interesting and Star Trek is a work of fiction but the fact that almost every single high-ranking admiral uh that we see is like corrupt in some way and they seem to also have way more influence I, I think than like even like for how militaristic the United States is as a country there is still a very defined line between military and civilian government like a general cannot make policy in a way that i feel like often starfleet officers are um which i think and again i think a lot of this goes back to the idea that because 
they chose to make Star Trek about Starfleet. And because they have continued with that um, throughout the seven, eight series that we've had now, it makes it so that even though we have this over 800 episodes of like background and lore and world bidding, we're only concentrating on this one very specific aspect of life. And I think the militarization of and like how big Starfleet is and like the problems that come with it are because all narrative plot lines in this universe have to be filtered through Starfleet. And like Yasser was saying, it's a military when it's convenient, but it's also the diplomatic agency. It's also the science. Like we don't really see much. They touch on it every now and again. There'll be an episode where there's some scientist who hates working with Starfleet. But for the most part, if you want to do, you know, big science where you need the resources uh, that Starfleet has, you have to be working with the military there for at least from what I've seen, most people in the Federation, if you wanted to do pretty much anything, you have to go through Starfleet. If you're doing something right. off planet, it has to be through Starfleet. Well, there's sort of a problem of the... I, you know, I made a joke yesterday, which is that the real purpose of Starfleet is to treat is to teach gay people to operate as chip of the line of the West <laughs> Indies. But this is the problem, is that the galaxy that Jim Kirk is in is not Europe or the Middle East, or it is the West Indies circa 1795, where mm. there is one governmental official in a within a thousand miles. You, as captain of the HMS whatever, are the authority on the ground. And you're the only way anybody can get around anyway. So you have ultimate authority. And that works for Star Trek, where you try, the original show, you're trying to do a condensed show set on the far frontier, where there is very little law. Because in the circumstances we see civilian officials in the original series, you know, um, Ambassador Robert Fox, Commissioner Ferris, Commissioner Barris, Nazi Hedford, it's quite clear that Kirk has to stand to attention and do whatever the hell they say. You know, in like um, Galileo 7, the official's like, you, I know your crew's on the planet died, but you know, I've got to fucking go. So off we fuck. <laughs> And Kirk's kind of looks at me like, yeah, okay, I guess we're doing that. And that's when civilian government shows up in the original series, Kirk does what he's told because it's quite clear he's part of the chain of command. But when you get to the next generation, it's quite clear that the writers just don't want to deal with that. Because you have a lot of admirals who seem to be working, should really be civilian officials. For like sure. um. when the bow breaks, which is the one with the admiral who starts with her aging, which is a really bad episode of season one I watched last night for some not last night two nights ago for some fucking reason. That guy should not be an admiral. He should be a fucking ambassador. It's. I think it's basically that in TNG somebody read the TOS writers' bible wrong, and then we've had to deal with the legacy of that for another 40 years we love miscommunication and i also kind of wanted to um piggyback off of what genevieve uh, what genevieve said which was like you have eight series of star trek all focusing on starfleet like where is my like interstellar medical drama like there's so much you can do <laughs> well, it's, what we've essentially got is um 
We just got military propaganda. We've got a history of colonialism written from the perspective of the colonial military, which interestingly is that book on my shelf called The Scrabble for Africa. Oh, that's great. It's a fucking horrible book, but it's like, it's a real life problem, which is that when Star, Star Trek writers until DS9, even during DS9, actually DS9 is an exception to the rule, have really no interest in figuring out what happens off the ship. Mm. Because I think that would require, that's a, lot, that's a lot of inventiveness for a script you had to write in the 48 hours before it starts shooting. I mean, I think that is a big reason why Deep Space Nine appealed to so many people, um, especially people that were, I think there's, and there's obviously some overlap in here, but there's two, I think, main kinds of Star Trek fans. There's ones that are like purely there for the sci-fi and there's ones that are there for the characters. And don't get me wrong, like there are people, most people fall into both of those categories, but I think when you're talking to someone, you can usually really tell what perspective they're coming from. Like people, there's a certain type of person that watched Next Generation and only Next Generation. And to be like, that was the one that was most syndicated. It was the most widely available. But if you watch those, like because Gene Roddenberry made the decision that in the future, all interpersonal conflict would be solved because we would just evolve to be that nice to each other. Uh, made it so that, especially before season seven, really, uh, I would say that the characters, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love me some data, I guess, but the characters are relatively weak compared to, I would argue, every other Star Trek series with the possible exception of, like, the side characters on Enterprise. Like, I would say the side characters on Enterprise have about as much character development as everyone other than Picard and Data on TNG, which is fine. Like, it, like, got really into, like, those, like, heady, like what-if scenarios, and I, uh, on the episode that we did on here about Tuvix, I mean, it really thrived on those hypotheticals where they pretend like there's an analog for real life and it has an actual moral meaning, but, like, it's something so convoluted, it would never come up. Like, there was this tweet, and I, I do not remember who tweeted it, but it was something along the lines of, like, uh, Star Trek will ask you if it's okay to commit genocide, if it's going to like completely wipe out this boy, one specific beetle, but also the beetle also committed genocide. <laughs> and like, then you end up in like the same series. You have we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the ethics of terrorist bombing. Will this episode have a resolution to that question? Perhaps not. No, I have a lot of feelings with how they portrayed, but with how they portrayed the Majorans, because it's like I'm not even talking about the Majorans. I was talking about the high ground, which is the one from TNG where um, Doctor Crusher gets abducted. No, that's fair. I just like because I'm on my DS9 rewatch. And like every single time they call the Majorans terrorist, I'm sitting there, my Middle Eastern ass watching, like, mm-hmm. yeah, uh-huh. Call like call this people so very heavily influenced by the Palestinian Liberation Movement terrorists. Uh-huh. <laughs> so great. Which is, which is interesting because Deep Space Nine was made in the 90s. And I think that they were doing that intentionally, right? Mm. Yeah, they were intentionally um, drawing off of the PLO. Um, yeah. The conflict, the, the the ongoing conflict in um, former Yugoslavia, off of post, off of colonial activism in Algeria. There are yeah. a lot of draw. I mean, I can't. I think it might have been Monroe's been the podcast. He pointed out how fucking horrible 
DS9 would have been if it had been made after 9-11. That's one of the things that's yeah. interesting about Oh, you about mean Enterprise? This... <laughs> <laughs> no, but you have a point, be... and this is what I was thinking about as well, because it was like, if it was after 9-11, I wondered, like, how they would have handled it because the 90s especially is like when um, US imperialism really started to get their footing into the Middle East. Um, and then 9-11 happened and then we were, there was like such a like a hard cultural shift of like, you know, the Middle East producing terrorists and suddenly like all of this kind of stuff is happening. So we really do have to wonder and the result of that is indeed Actually, there is another answer for you because the people that made Deep Space Nine went on after 9-11 to make Battlestar Galactica. Oh, oh God. Yeah. Here, I mean, they, they, I'm going to have to check that out. Not, they're, they're, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. They're full-on character, full characters and story arcs and plots that are strip-mined from Deep Space Nine and put into Battlestar Galactica. Mm. Oh, my oh, God. You're right. The home front conquered by the oppressive force, it's in both. Uh, Baltar has ties with like uh, Dukat. Ty has ties with Damar. Um, but the other thing is in Battlestar Galactica, the Cylons are the terrorists and it goes through efforts to make you understand and sympathize with that. Like in the same way that they do with the changelings or with the Bajorans, just in different ways. Mm. But there's also an arc where they put the protagonists in the shoes of the terrorists and film scenes as if they're from the war in Iraq. Yeah, there's a whole arc at the beginning of season three of BSG, which is, oh, wow. Um, yeah, Ron Moore did not like the Iraq war. <laughs> I have to ask. Hot take. I have to ask. <laughs> Now, you say they were shooting things as if they were in the Iraq War. Did it have the sepia, like, overlay, the Hollywood no, sepia actually, it overlay? Didn't, it didn't go it had, sepia. Everything just went very gray. Uh, <laughs> you had, you had the night vision views of, like, the Cylon, you know, abduction squads moving through, uh, um, you know, uh, whatever those uh, settlements were that they had in Battlestar Galactica. It, it, but it looked like the type of film that you would see from, you know, the invading force. Right. But it's against the characters that you care about, which, you know, was a political statement in 20, in 2006. Um, yep. I think to, to also to build up of something that Genevieve said earlier, right? Like it's not just that all of the Starfleet admirals are bad. It's also that they're all human, right? Mm. Like, I mean, it's mm. one of the production constraints of Star Trek, particularly, you know, 60s and 90s Trek is this, you know, you can only fit so many aliens on the bridge because you can only afford so many of them. But there is this, like, there is this big gap between the United Federation of Planets and Starfleet as the characters on the show tell us that it is versus what we see. And what we see is really important, right? Because oftentimes it creates much more indelible memories than, than what we hear. And what we see is largely human crews traveling around the galaxy with, you know, token alien officers because that's all they could afford. I mean, they've done a bit of a better job in more recent 
Trek and especially with the animated ones of um, diversifying not just the gender and the gender identity of the characters, but also the 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 species of the characters as well. Um, in addition to also doing better on racial diversity, but ultimately you're still looking at mostly. I mean, even take Discovery, right? There's still it's still a largely human crew because the extras all end up being human. If you do a car corridor shot, it's just largely large numbers of humans. And most of the people we see in positions of authority, AKA your sort of admirals and above, they do tend to be more humans than they are aliens. If it were the case that the Federation was, was what they tell us it is rather than what we see it as being, which is a true multicultural, multi-ethnic democracy in which you would walk down the corridors of a Federation starship or any Starfleet embassy and you would see, you wouldn't be able to tell who was the dominant species, right? Because you would be seeing all kinds of races wherever you were within the Federation. Then I think the interpretation of how those activities end up being perceived is quite different than what we actually see in the show, which is, mm. you know, we sort of alluded to this in the conversation and, and, and prior to starting recording, that sort of, you know, space colonialism element to it. I think it, it, it sort of turned up to 11 by the fact that you have these mostly human crews, because in the same way, when we were talking about the UN and, you know, the UN is, is, is dominated by the members of the Security Council, right? It's not a true egalitarian multinational democracy. It is a multinational oligarchy that is run by a small number of actors. And the Federation that we see looks more like the UN as it is, right? It's humans, it's Vulcans, it's Andorians, it's Tellarites, but it's mostly humans, right? It's mostly the United States if we were taking the, the UN analogy. Um, but that's sort of not how it's supposed to be, but there's a lot of work to still to be done on on a you know if this was something the writers really cared about which they don't because they're trying to tell good stories and, and, and that's ultimately <laughs> what it comes down to yep. but there's a long way to go between between just saying what the values and the ideals of the federation are in which case the sort of military role for starfleet i think works really well versus what you actually see which is quite a bit more problematic well i think too if you are extending that metaphor I think it is telling that Enterprise, and I don't know if this had been established before um, Enterprise aired or whether Enterprise was the one that created this, but the fact that Starfleet as an organization existed long before the Federation for like at least a hundred-ish years. And it like, it it's, it's like if the United States went to the UN and said, and you can argue that they sort of did, went to the UN and said, hey, everyone, now that we're all in this together, what if we made our military everyone's military? And it's fine. So <laughs> true. So <laughs> true. It's, like, it's even it's not, funnier, they actually. Because it they didn't create something new. It's <laughs> even funnier because in Enterprise, Starfleet, it's not 100, it's 30 years old. It was created in 20, like 2134, 35. So it's only about 25 right. years old right. when the Federation and founded. I... And like <laughs> six years before the era was founded. The United States Army was smaller than the Canadian Army. Can I, uh, can I just insert a hot take for a second? Just a, just a scooch of a hot take. Is Starfleet not just Space Force? Yes. It's <laughs> Space Force with better branding. It's if the Democratic Party got control over Space Force. 
God. <laughs> Obviously, oh. so so the books aren't canon, right? We'll t- we'll just say that. But but there's books are but canon. If in... I say that. books are canon, if Olivia says they're canon, so I'll make a Thank note you. to ask her. Okay, so the 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 Rise of the Federation series, which which did not kind of continue all the way to completion, but the sort of um, post founding of the Federation books by Christopher L. Bennett. He has this really, there's these really interesting threads that run through it of, because we never see this, right? We go from Earth Starfleet in Enterprise to Federation Starfleet in now Discovery being the next one on the timeline. And we don't see any of the, you know, in the Enterprise time period, we have the Vulcan Expeditionary Group, the Tellarites have their own army, the Andorian Imperial Guard. And at some point, all of those organizations amalgamate together into the Federation Starfleet. And there is this interesting kind of, um, a thread that runs through these books of of that kind of tension of okay well now everybody's playing together under one organization but you still have human ships and you still have Vulcan ships and you still have Andorian ships and 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 TOS because it couldn't decide which it wanted to do kind of indicates that there are still human ships and Vulcan ships and and other kind of ships right the USS Intrepid I forget the episode but is a Vulcan ship they 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 call it out in dialogue as being a it's a Federation starship but it is crewed entirely by Vulcans and so we don't see that kind of we, we never get the chance to wrap our hands around this idea of of that integration between these different militaries. We just go from the human Starfleet to the human facing Starfleet, which is the Federation Starfleet. Um, but there is not then that kind of grappling with, uh, well, if if Earth and Vulcan and Andor and Tella come together, and if they're all roughly, you know, the same kind of power base and same kind of economic strength, like what does that ultimately look like? What we see is a Federation Starfleet that looks like Earth comes out on top and is king because, you know, it's easier to put humans on ships than it is to put um, Andorians and Vulcans on ships from a production perspective. I think, yeah, it's sort of the... The key problem with Enterprise being counted in season four is that they ran into season seven and they got the Romulan War and they got to do all that. The Federation would make so much more sense because if you follow the books through the Romulan War series and Rise of the Federation series, what's really clear is that the Federation exists because the four powers of the, those four powers were this close, with, you know, so the audio, once again, audio format, were, you know, very close to being wiped off the face of the earth by the Romulans face of the galaxy by the Romulans. Because the Romulan war is basically an existential war for the survival of humanity. And out of that comes this assumption with the four powers that we cannot let that happen again. Because otherwise we're toast. So we're going to form a union to stop that happening. But because we don't get that, the reason the Federation exists is very nebulous. Like Starfleet being a pseudo-military force, the complicated question of how armed it should be and how armed it shouldn't be make a lot more sense when you understand the galaxy around it. Mm. Didn't you know, um, it's, um... So sorry. Didn't they, like, touch up on that in Enterprise, though, where it's, yeah. like, um, like, they were facing off, like, I think against, I think it was, like, the Romulans for the first time, but they, like, they didn't see the Romulans, like, they didn't get to, like, see the yeah, there's the, of the Romulans. Yeah, sort of control shit that can yeah. um, take over other ships, like, yeah. They were, like, hey, we need we need some kind of like weapon defense and the Vulcans were like, no, because you are, that is basically like giving a toddler a gun. I do think though, <laughs> speaking of like colonialism in general, I do think the choice that, um, I have a pet theory and I am fully aware that I, I want to give zero credit 
to uh, the writers of Enterprise for this because I do not think it was intentional. Um, but I do think it's interesting how often the humans in Enterprise are put in the position, not as like a direct one-to-one, but they are put in the position of various groups that the U.S. military has been against throughout history. Like with the Vulcans, they become, like they treat humans as the, you know, how many times has the U.S. military been like, oh, well, like these people, like they don't know how to like handle these weapons. Like we're just going to go in and we'll be their military for them. Like, that is like a like the whole white man's burden. Is uh, the Vulcans are doing that. <laughs> like the Vulcans, um, we've talked about it on the podcast before. But there's a book again, not canon, but um, the Federation: The First 150 Years, and it's written as a in-universe sort of like coffee table history book. It's beautiful. Um, so, it's beautiful. It has so a lot beautiful. of like uh, it creates a lot of primary sources. It'll have like treaties and like letters from people and it talks about how there was this period of time that I would I'm dying for them to make a show about which was there was a time when humans had figured out warp drive we knew conceptually how to do it but in order to make any ship that went faster than warp two we needed to be able to get supplies and it would take us like 50 years to get there at like warp one in order to get those supplies so when we asked the Vulcans for help they're like na 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 we know we could just like trade you these items, but we're not going to. And um, Archer's father, his like claim to fame was he created this plan with, he got all the humans together and was like, listen, if we stick to this and we like follow these years, like rather than all of us individually trying to figure this out on our own, this is a plan and I think in like 25 years, we could get to warp five. And because of the Vulcans, like basically going to other races and being like, don't trade with these guys, they're babies. Um, it takes closer to like 35 years. And that's why Archer hates the Vulcans so much is because his father died before he got to see his ship completed. And uh, like all good Starfleet captains, he legally has to have daddy issues. Of course. Uh, <laughs> listen, though, the Vulcans had a point. The Vulcans had a point. I would not trust us with, with warp. Well, all right, here's the point, which is um, if the Vulcans have a the point. The Vulcans man burden. Yeah. If the Vulcans, <laughs> the Vulcans have, burden. Point, I, mean, actually, I was on black alert when they, we talked about colonialism there. And, you know, I was like, you can't spend all your time going oh, the prime director sucks, they're so imperial. And they go, actually, yeah, the Vulcans shouldn't give the humans, shouldn't let the humans into space. Because it's basically the prime, it's the basic principle of Enterprise that the prime director of the Vulcan idea. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's part of the Federation charter because the Vulcans were like, this has got to be the number one thing. And the humans went, all right, fine, I guess we're putting that at number one on the list. I well, think we get it's the capital. So- like, I think the idea of the Prime Directive in context of, like, the first contact is fucking hilarious because, imagine, like, you just fucking, you went out of the solar system, you did it, and you made it back within, like, what, two hours, and suddenly some fucking space elf lands down in your, like, middle of nowhere, like, literally in ass Arizona, Montana. nowhere. Montana, yeah. even worse than Arizona, Montana. <laughs> Literally, ass crack nowhere, Montana, in the fallout of like World War Three, and like you know, some space off is like, I come in peace, and like it's it's fucking hilarious. Like you managed to do that, and suddenly it's like, oh shit, there's life, there's oh, life outside our star system. I mean, I think sort of oh, you could make the argument. Myself. 
<laughs> the argument, I think, at least from the Vulcan perspective for the Prime Directive is more, at least like from what we've seen in Enterprise, and also they talk about how partly the Vulcans were threatened because humans were advancing much quicker um, mm. in terms of technology than they had. Which, you know, really you can talk funny. about that all day. Um, but, like, the in-universe explanation is that because humans did want to go out and have contact with all these people, their acceleration was much faster because they were able to pull from all these sources. Mm. And I believe that the Vulcan Prime Directive is basically just, once you have warp drive, it's inevitable that you're going mm. to like you're deal with warp cable. Anyway. You're going to, so, like, there's no point in delaying it. I think in a, at least in a, pre-enterprise world the vulcans would ideally talk to no one and have no one else talk to anyone they're like very isolationist like they'll have trade when needed but it's like what's the price of this can i buy with the andorians god like so now now how are vulcans going to say infinite diversity and infinite combinations but then they look at like then they look at like everyone else in the galaxy and they're like no not you yeah Yeah, infinite diversity and infinite combinations in the vulcan sense just means leave me the fuck alone (laughs) i know this i know this is a podcast about military conversation can we just agree that vulcans are assholes except for like specific vulcans they were so hard to spot vulcans that have human dna Listen, I am My here pers- to champion Spock, the mixed legend who overcompensates for being mixed. I'm here to, I'm here as his champion, but the Vulcans are both assholes, but sometimes they're just like, I'm just like, yeah, I would not, again, I would not trust humans with for, with photon torpedoes or not even warp three. Okay. Like just I- <laughs> none of that. I'm going to stand up for the Vulcans a little bit because I, I know that one of the visions of Star Trek throughout its creation was that, you know, we'll overcome our current state and we'll go out to the universe and we'll make friends with everybody. We'll, we'll meet our stellar brethren and we'll come together in unity. And so I'm, you know, I'm going to stand up for the Vulcans because they're, they're our first contact. I kind of feel like the they're, they're humanity's best friends. <laughs> Right, no, I feel like humans <laughs> got off fucking lucky with Vulcans being the first yeah. contact. Like, they could have made first contact with the Andorians, to put there, it in there perspective. They could have made first contact with the Klingons. Well, the oh, humans they could have had first with contact with the Tellarites, which is really funny as well. Like, if Tellarites came onto Earth, and then it was just like, what the fuck is the shithole of a planet? Like, that's literally all I can imagine a Tellarite <laughs> landing on Earth for the first time it would be like. It was just like, you guys, you live like this? <laughs> points at points at Portland. This is where you live. <laughs> you I live think, in that. Wait, John, Pointing have you Florida. seen the film? What? Has John seen the film First Contact? Yes, of course I've seen First. Okay, Contact. wait, is that what you think Arizona looks like? <laughs> I don't listen. I live in Arizona's a desert. I live I can't in normal I'm say island. This. I, I can't believe I'm going to say on. this. I'm gonna defend. I'm gonna defend the person from the UK, and I don't. I can't believe I'm gonna say this, but it's okay. Like he's from a different <laughs> continent. Leave him alone. I'll, I'll let him have it. I just. I knew it was a. It was like west of the Midwest, east of the Rockies. It was not a Dakota, and it wasn't the square one. As so. an American, I do not like to make fun of anyone else for where they're from, with the exception of the British. I think that as an American, I can make fun of any British person, whatever I want. Thank you. 
are you doing, Alex? And piggybacking off of that. I'm a a US citizen now, so I can make fun of you too, Jack. Oh, (laughs) thank you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull up, I'm gonna pull the rug from out of, uh, uh, out of all of you. Um, As an Arab, I feel like I get to make fun of both the British and the Americans. So I'm the winner here. We deserve it. It's fine. I'm I'm (laughs) Irish. I don't deserve any of this. I want want the Irish line. The Irish, no, yeah, the Irish are cool. The no Irish are cool. With the just, Irish. When, you, when it comes down to the English specifically. Yeah, just the, I don't, I'm even okay with the Welsh and the Scots. It's really just the English. It's the English. I'm it's not just I'm just born English. here. I don't have any, I didn't even rely on any English blood in my body. I'm just born here. Can you get back on topic before I get angry? <laughs> well, I was going to, I was going to. We were talking about. I think we about, should make fun of you for being English, for being British once more. No, I'm kidding. We, you were saying, we, were talking about, we, we, we were talking about first contact and we were talking about enterprise and so mm. i wanted to take a second and sort of talk about the history of starfleet because i think it'll sort of help us understand a little bit more it's it's bent towards some militaristic framing even though it has a lot of other things going on with it so um i'm going to quote troy when she's talking to cochran about first contact explaining to him why it's important where she says, first contact unites humanity in a way no one ever thought possible. Whether we think that's possible or not, you know, in the text it is. I think it is, but that's just me. When they realize they're not alone in the universe, poverty, disease, war, they'll all be gone within the next 50 years. And so I pulled some notes from the Star Trek Adventures rule book because it has a lot of information. And it specifically says that Starfleet is neither only military or only scientific endeavors or diplomacy. It's a combination of all these things. And I think that that history is important. Humanity makes first contact with the Vulcans. And then we see, wow, we're not alone in the universe. There's stuff out there where we can explore like these aliens that we've just encountered for the first time. And you can see that in the NX-01s first expeditions away from earth they have the militaristic they have like the you know military hierarchy they have weapons on board but it is very much peaceful exploration scientific discovery um i mean the 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 guy that they have on board that's the military guy is malcolm reed and he's like nobody likes him (laughs) i do think it's interesting i didn't like him throughout (laughs) Well, but, I mean, nobody likes him on board. Like everybody's yeah, like, this, he's "What's British. this guy's favorite food?" We don't know. He's a Navy guy. Who I don't know. I mean, Malcolm like, Reed makes much more sense when you just had canon that basically he was in the Royal Navy. Then one day the Royal Navy went, "We need you to go to Starfleet," and he went, "I don't want to." And they went, "Tough. You're an astronaut now." I would <laughs> love to talk about the fact that for some insane reason, Her Majesty's Royal Navy still exists in Enterprise. <laughs> Listen, as we all know, the queen is hooked up to a soul-sucking machine, so she will live forever. I just think it's very we funny draw lots, that even... As British subjects, we draw lots to decide who will get subsumed into the machine to make sure <laughs> she can stay alive until she can be made immortal. I just think it's very Please funny that even in 150, 150 years from now, uh, they will still, like, there will still be British dads who are furious that their son doesn't join the British? Na- what is the British Navy doing? 
Well, in you have to remember Tom Paris world. nearly joined the Federation. Well, you see. Which is hilarious. <laughs> well, you like, see, from, from a historical and cultural experience, what the British Navy are still doing is that they're like, you know what? First, we will make contact with another culture, yeah? And then we will be like, hey, we and can we have protect you. And then that's how they get in. But are they but still doing like it in, in the 20 20 second like, session? Well, they're they gonna go do to it. Australia the British like, will find hey. a way. It takes a, it takes a lot of manpower to continue subjugating the French, which is clearly what's happened. <laughs> given that every French person in the 24th century has a British accent, so that's, that's what I think the British Navy is doing. Thank you for finally I think we could actually, this You know what? We've been dunking on the British, but if that is ca- that is now canon, that is an acceptable <laughs> piece of British content, keeping Absolutely. the French under heel. <laughs> I think it's hilarious what whenever it? Patrick Stewart's playing fucking Picard. Picard's like, like, yes, I'm a French man. I hit like well, I hate and the his British. brother <laughs> and his sister-in-law. His sister-in-law, who's not she's she's French, right? She's not from like even if you said the Picards were an English family that moved to France and adopt- and became culturally French, even though they were originally English. The fact that his sister-in-law and his best friend all also have very strong British accents, despite not being at all related and yet coming from this one area of France. Very strongly- How do we know that Picard that is just very inbred? Well, well, yeah, I Data mentions that nobody speaks French anymore. It's a dead language. So, like, some point in the next like four hundred years, people just France. We've we've we did it, people. We we're gonna knock France off of my dream. No more France. Society has progressed past the need for France. France only exists to make wine. God, I think to top it all off is that you have an American character named Tom Paris. It's it's just the cherry on fucking top. Like that's it. The French fr- don't exist. Okay, Tom Paris is a direct descendant of uh, of Paris Hilton. She decide he decided to take her last name in honor. That's my personal her pet first theory, name. Apparently. You mean? Yeah, he took her first name to honor her. He was really ah! now. I know we're very far from the topic, but shall we have a go at getting back to it from Paris yeah. Hilton discourse? Uh, yes, I would love course. to talk about season three of Enterprise. I feel like we're dancing around. Uh, yeah, it. I feel like well, we are dancing around please. the most jingoistic piece of Star Trek ever created. <laughs> oh, God. Two yeah. wars. It, Archer like, tortures a guy. He, he feels does. bad he about it. He dish. feels bad about it. It's I'm okay sure. that I'm he sure, committed sure war Dick's... crimes. He feels bad about it. I'm sure Rumsfeld did too. No, he, <laughs> no, he didn't. No, he didn't. He's Donald Rumsfeld. He can fucking okay. <laughs> of course he did. My hot take about the Archer torture scene is obviously I'm not pro torture, but neither. That's a great start to a sentence. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> That's a wonderful start right. to a sentence. Now I'm not pro torture, but. In universe, he's wrong. Like immediately, the show was like, "That was a bad thing that you just did, Archer." Like, Archer's a bad dude for doing it in the show. Like, I would argue that other Star Trek captains did way worse things. I mean, and- Cisco, Cisco used chemical bio, chemical warfare. Yeah. What Cisco did to the Marquis was objectively way worse yes. than Edith, than yes. Archer. Like. Did Archer torture one dude? Absolutely. Should he be punished for it? Absolutely. But the show, imme- like every single person on the ship is immediately like, Archer, that was pretty fucked up thing you just did. 
Sometimes you that later in the season, they then go and steal the warp core from Casey, uh, the warp coil from Casey Biggs. And the show does say, the show is like, no, that was fine. All good. All good. Yeah, oh, he's going to die, but it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like there's this like visceral thing where like anytime, and I'm aware this is like a TV show problem, which is that because it's a TV show, the things that we're, we are privy to seeing and there are things that are going to happen off screen. And if we were like a citizen of the Federation, we wouldn't have seen either one of those things. We would only get like a report on it hmm. uh, versus we get to see Archer torture someone and like, Watching someone get tortured is uh, not fun, so we hate it. But like when Cisco poisons an entire deep, an entire planet, it's like it's a theoretical. Like we don't see those people like gasping for air or anything like that. I mean, I and think I feel like because it happens off screen, we're like more willing to forgive it. I'm gonna take this as an opportunity to pivot to the second half of the question, which is why does it matter? Why was the Starfleet not the military? Which is um. As you say, it's about presentation. There's an important fact, which is that these guys are our heroes. And they're meant mm. to present a good world. But this Starfleet is, for all forms and functions, performing military actions in a good or bad light. It's really fucking important that they don't do shit like that. Mm. But if you're going to have I agree. Cisco... Yep. But it is... It is it, it, Archer does it at a moment where we're kind of learning. Where he's kind of learning how to interact mm. with the greater galaxy. Right. But also, sorry, he Archer was bored of the 2220s. I'm sure he's read enough books on the 20s and 21st centuries to know that torture is bad. Yeah, Have the absolutely. people today read I, enough books to know that? Well, as we know, Donald Rumsfeld can't read, or never could read. <laughs> so, uh, so, no. No, here's, here's the thing as well, is that, like, I think we're all forgetting that Archer is indeed American, and I have mm-hmm. no doubt that American imperialism, like the patri- like the patriotism, will still thrive within like two hundred years. Um, and then, like the thing about Enterprise as well, it shows humans getting put in their fucking place sometimes. Mm-hmm. I love it because it's a, it's early space exploration for us, which means that we will absolutely have to face the consequences of our actions. And be and face the fact that we are not the like penultimate beings of the galaxy. There are other there are other forces that will put us in our place. Even well, the OS does that. Yeah, yeah. Not, of not Mercy does that, deeply. where it's just like actually no existential war is bad. Exactly. Well, I it, do it, think it, a question I have sort of for the group, but mostly for John, because I know his love for uh, military novellas, um, which is that, do you think that if they hadn't gone that direction, do you think that specifically, let's go with Enterprise and say just for Earth, like not even taking into consideration all the other species, do you think that, especially on Enterprise, because it is in a lot of ways, a lot more, and this is something I sort of like that they did, they make it much more similar to our military um, than TOS and especially Next Generation. Like, Next Generation, they go really far out of their way to be like, the Enterprise D is a floating community. There's schools, there's hair salons, there's restaurants, there's, there's a lot of civilians on board, whereas Enterprise really, like, dives into the submarine concept where it's cramped quarters, um, there's not that many people on board. Like even um, the fact that the captain 
dines in a mess separately from the crew and has like a steward bring him his food um, rather than going to like 10 forward and having a waiter there, I think is interesting. And do you think that if they hadn't gone that direction, do you think that they're, because obviously like the military, military organization has advantages. Part of the reason that there is military order of like rank and like if you get an order, you have to follow it is because you are in these extreme situations. Do you think a civilian force that didn't have that military hierarchy would have worked as yes. like in enterprise. I think. Oh, in enterprise. In, in, enterprise. in enterprise. In enterprise. I, I mean, by TNG, that's a difference. By TNG, it's like they're basically just floating cars at that point. But like when we were first going out, and there's only one warp five vessel that's doing space exploration, and there's going to be a lot of times when a decision needs to be made. And everyone has to follow it. We don't really have, there does need to be one person making the de decisions. Do you think a more democratic civilian or commercial even force would have worked as well? Well, it's the principle, which is I can conclusively say no, because we have real life examples of the fact that civilian <laughs> organizations operate with rank systems. Fire brigades operate, that's a principle system. Mm -hmm. The fire brigade has a rank system. It's not the it's not a military rank system with lieutenants and captains. It's a, it's a rank system because in crisis situations, well, there's a reason NASA has rank systems, and there are crew captains and flying and flight captains, and ISS has a captain and an XO. Because split systems have been made. Military hierarchies are not put in organizations because they're cool, unless you're the Salvation Army and you're fucking right. weird and crispy about it. But but well, this they work. Is, but, but this is also like um there's a go on to trek twitter and there's two things people will just like get frothy at the mouth over one was tuvix murdered two was jellico a good captain we'll set aside the was tuvix murdered question but, we did, but we the, did that last but the but the way that people respond to the jellico question i think very clearly indicates whether they look at starfleet as being a military organization or not right because jellico's a military captain Exactly. But he's a terrible manager, right? So if you look at it from the perspective of a of what makes a civilian organization, any kind of, you know, corporation, um, uh, anything that's non-military work, he's objectively terrible. He doesn't listen to his team. He he he's not responsive to their needs. He just tells them what needs to happen and expects them to do it right if Starfleet is that true military organization, then that's fine, right? That's how it's supposed to work. He's the guy who says jump and you say how high and when does it need to be done by? And, and that's ultimately where that tension arises is that Starfleet is depicted as being an organization that is supposed to be, I think, not the classic military structure, right? It's supposed to be more of the best of both worlds, ha 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 ha. Pulling in the kind of, you know, some of that military structure, but also some of that like, we're a team and we're gonna do this all together. And like, we're gonna pull on the best parts of the team and we're gonna make it successful by, by you know, drawing on everybody's strengths and weaknesses. But there is that inherent tension there. And so Genevieve, to your question around, does it work during the enterprise period? I think no. And it ultimately then, then it starts to unravel from there of- Right, like it started off being a military. And so we're going to continue that structure right. because it worked at the time. So, and People hate change. I don't care what. But the it's also are. People that hate the it. this is the thing that 
Enterprise gets, but I'll be quite frank, Discovery doesn't, which is that until TNG, Galaxy's really fucking dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely. In Enterprise, Earth is like... TNG. It, well, the, when you get to even well, you got the Borg and team. Yeah, uh, when, I was trying to pull up. I was trying to pull up that Q quote from Q Who, where he's, uh, you know, when he he spirits Picard and the Enterprise off to the first contact of the Borg, and he's like, "It's wondrous with treasures to satiate desires both subtle and gross, but it's not for the timid." Yeah, and that kind of like th- this goes to something that I wanted to say, which is every single like you were talking about how you know, the Defiant isn't just a warship, they're all warships. Every single Starfleet ship carries like a weapons complement that could devastate the surface of an entire planet, mm. right? That is an enormous amount of armaments for what's supposedly a peacekeeping and scientific mission. Mm. At the same time, they're going out into the unknown and we already know that there are dangerous expansionist empires or, um, beings with which you can't negotiate right like Giant the borg. space amoeba <laughs> right because like the doomsday machine so like, or the borg yeah that, like maybe you can't talk to them and you can only fend them off with this terrifying weapon but we also don't see every single week like a galaxy class ship going and subjugating a world like they carry like this big stick because they've dealt with threats in the past like the cindy or the romulan it's the problem. It's the problem of the big stick, because you look at this is one of my frustrating things about Discovery is that the Federation Discovery doesn't feel like the Federation TOS because the Federation TOS is kind of slightly falling apart at the seams. You know, Jim Kirk has to herd a bunch of ambassadors to a planet, otherwise the Federation might fall apart. Spock's life is in danger because the Enterprise needs to go to a um, inauguration, and if the inauguration goes badly, it might help the Klingons bring down the Federation, or um, you know. The Federation feels very not put together in TOS, whereas in Discovery, it doesn't quite get that Galaxy's dangerous and the Klingons could one day ride Targs down the palace, through the palace of Versailles and shit. And um. it, I mean, it's, I think this is the problem, also the meta problem with the meta narrative, which is that that point about Starfleet Munitions is that the galaxy is full of wonders, but it's also full of danger. Is something that is always sort of subtext. And TNG sort of took that subtext and realized that it needed to do something with it, and that's when we get the Dominion in DS9. But I don't think Star Trek writers really like engaging with the fact that the galaxy is really fucking dangerous, just on a regular basis. Mm. Like, until basically the end of the original series movies, everyone outside of the Federation is pretty chill with slavery. Ooh. I mean... It, 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 it's what I was mentioning before like the podcast started recording was that um, like the Federation is like quite like again like like center left in the fact that like they're all very like yeah we'll work together whatever whatever but they will also not really examine the actions of the people that they want to like negotiate like alliances with for example with the Cardassians like they fully just saw the Cardassians occupying Bajor and were still like, this doesn't violate any of our things. Like they're not part of the Federation. So it's okay if we interact with them and like negotiate like resources and trading and diplomacy, blah, blah, blah with them. That's fine. Um, Which again, like brings me to my point that like, 
militaries and colonialism are intrinsically linked. Their whole like, uh, their whole like go out into the galaxy and explore and, you know, do whatever is like that guilt-free sense of colonialism where like this land doesn't technically belong to anyone. So we are allowed to take it kind of mindset. And, and again, like, uh, like the, like the, the founding members of the, the Federation, like the Andorians and the Tellarites, I would say they're, they're both quite militaristic. And yet they always go like, well, Starfleet's not military technically. Um, it's, it's just a very like, like they see there's one thing. It's like, I love Star Trek and I cannot say it's consistent. <laughs> Boy, it's, I'm, oh, I'm sort of glad it's, it's not, not consistent. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, you know, when I did a whole podcast talking, it's on Black Alert. I talked about Star Trek and colonialism. It's very good. Those guys are wonderful. Mm. And yeah, it's at the end of the day, Star Trek is the original Star Trek with a very sanitized depiction of late 17th, early, late 18th, early 19th century colonialism. But, and it's not, it's kind of like, oh, that's just it. We can't really do much about that because that's the setting. It's sort right. of like, you can't. Mm. The mechanics of it as a setting are that. And it's also, you know, and the question of, obviously, of what does one do with when one lives next to powers who really fucking suck? Yeah. And, you know, well, the, the, the Cardassian arc from the wounded to all the way through to what you leave, what we leave, what you leave behind is a really good demonstration of how there basically is no winning move and dealing with, like, a militarist power beyond like that just isn't a winning move because mm. if you try and negotiate a settlement to try and stop a, a small conflict you end up fucking somebody over if you try and work with them to bring civilian government from the inside somebody else fucks them over there's the immor- there's the questions of morality around dealing with imperial powers even if you're trying to save one party you're going to let down another party Right, like the episode where Picard is trying to negotiate, like, again, what I brought up before the the recording started was when, um, like, Picard was trying to negotiate between the Cardassians and the Native American settlement on on a colony planet. What an episode. Yeah, what an episode. (laughs) An episode that did not need to (sighs) Where Picard also kind of had this sort of sense of white guilt. Um... Like again, like it's it, it's like what do you do in that situation? And I, honest to God, don't remember how that episode ended. Just because I think I wanted to block that out of my mind. <laughs> I think they relocate them, don't they? It's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah, like, I believe that they relocated them. So like, it's not even that. Like, no, you know, they come they come to an agreement to let them stay there, but under Cardassian authority. Which yeah, is, which is like oh, cool. great. Yeah. So it's just subject. It's, it's just subjugating. <laughs> so they let them be on a reservation, <laughs> right? Literally, like it's already like sub- it's subjugating these people that have already been under a like colonial oh, right. not, like occupation to another colonial occupation. Your colonial settlements. Yeah, right. So like this is what I was saying with the whole like you know militaries and colonialism are intrinsically in, like linked together you can't separate the two even if you're going to do like theoretical fantasy like you know guilt-free colonialism out into space you will still need a militaristic force to defend your like to defend your settlement because of course that is the way that colonialism works but it's also like i mean this is the other factor which is that 
you can't escape the fact that if you're trying to build an ideal society, you got to defend it. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the inescapable fact that the Federation is a concerted group project to strive towards utopia. Right, absolutely. And that like, is a project that needs defending. I do think that are, especially uh, when there are forces outside of the Federation that don't want that to happen and if they see like a moment of weakness would probably attack. I do think that at least for me personally, I think for a lot of others, um, because Star Trek is obviously an American show made by mostly Americans, and although it's especially in the last, like, I would, since, like, streaming and things like that has gained a much more international audience, is still mostly watched by Americans, I think there's no way for an American brain to decouple the concept of military from the American military. I think mm. those two things are just like so intrinsically linked. And I think that is why you have such pushback on Star Trek being a military, because I mean, John, you can answer this question better than I can, but if we, how do we define a military? And if you go through that definition, does Starfleet have any of, not have all those check marks? Like, does it have the like structure of a military? Is it yeah, it hits all the boxes. Out? I it mean, I went the and... boxes. The only reason to not call it a military, I think, for a lot of Americans, is because I would argue, I would argue that most Star Trek fans are, I would argue, center left. Is I think that if you took like an, if you took a poll of the political affiliation of all Trekkies, I would say that you would get an average of center left. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you have, like... you have some real leftists, you have some conservatives, but it averages out to like a Hillary Clinton. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> you don't have to like I hate the fact that you're right though, is that like a lot of people, and especially with what I was saying, they're very center left with the fact that like, they won't look into examining who that they are affiliating with. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole kind of like kumbaya will work with anyone kind of attitude, which is like, you have to like, I simply put, I'm built different, but if I saw the Cardassians, I would simply not contact them ever again. <laughs> well, and also, I think, I think it's very hard for, at least for me personally, and I think this is true for I mean, other like, people as, as well. as an organization, yeah, it would probably be hard to avoid them if you're trying to, like, establish right. galactic peace, but as an individual, I, again, I, like, built different, not interacting just, with those motherfuckers. I mean, it's the other problem, which is, of course, is a lot of the time we're like, oh, why did you do the Kadassis? Which is like, well, the bloke, like Picard, it's not Picard's fault they or Cisco's fault or any of those guys' fault that they're talking about the Kadassis. It's because 50 years, because 50 years ago, some Starfleet captain tried to make peaceful contact with them and the Kadassis shot him to hell. <laughs> like the, the whole just... arc of the Kadassian wars, the Kadassis are very much like to murder a large number of Federation citizens and steal their lap. It's not the Kadassis land. Think... That even when the narrative gives me, I think I was raised in a very leftist household. Uh, at, I was seven when 9-11 happened. And by age eight, I was not saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school to protest the Iraq war. So I was like, I had like a very specific upbringing, but there is something in me that like, um, I see it, I think the most on Discovery 
um, especially the most recent season. And I get why they're doing it. I get it. I, I understand from a narrative perspective why they're doing it. But every time there's this like deification of Starfleet, of like, I think it's interesting that like in Discovery, for example, um, when they get thrown 900 years into the future, it's not the Federation that characters keep coming back to as like the sign of hope, it's Starfleet. I think it's interesting that like not only like we talked about have all of the different um, series focused on Starfleet, but like it is lauded as like the ultimate organization more than the Federation. Like, mm. do we even have a firm concept for how the Federation government works? Like, I don't think no, it's ever. Like, we don't. They, they have a president. <laughs> I they have president. It's the council, which I don't it, like. And is it, the council the it, parliament? Is it the congress? It, okay. How does I, it relate? To, does the president I'm come from saying, the? Please, yeah, I have I, 50 I prefer pages think, of notes on this. this is like, <laughs> to think of the federation. But there's just something in me that has this like visceral reaction to the military being like as an eight-year-old i had beer cans thrown at me and because i was and told i was like un-american and that i was like aiding the terrorists because i went to an anti-war like candlelight vigil so like, there's something in me that's like very much like every time i hear someone go like too hard for any military including starfield i'm like you sound like a bootlicker to me <laughs> Gen genevieve uh, they, it's funny that i was i was 16 when september 11th happened and i remembered you quote tweeting someone on twitter that was like you don't know if you had been around during the Iraq war, you would have agreed with it too. And I remember you and I were like tweeting, replying like, um, no, no. I, like, I was eight that. and I, like, even like without like my parents telling me, I remember having a conversation with my aunt when we were like first thinking about invading Afghanistan. And I was like, but like, why are we doing that? And they're like, they think there's bad people there. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. And like an eight year old figured that out. <laughs> Yeah, well, I feel like like an eight-year-old eight is smarter than Donald. Actually, an eight-year-old being smarter than Donald Rumsfeld does not surprise me. I feel like my age is really starting to like come through to me now because I'm 21. I was simply a one-year-old when 9/11 happened, and you know, I did not know any of that shit happening. You see, like the first time I was called a terrorist when I was 10. Because I've been bullied for this. <laughs> God, so like the first I time that I was called a terrorist was when I was 10 years old and it was only until I was like 14 that I was like, oh my God, that was baby's first racism. <laughs> oh, God, I remember baby's first racism. <laughs> but I mean, to, to roll it back to um, the topic at hand, which is your right, Genevieve, which is that because this is, um, let's face it, a piece of military fiction, it's based, you know, we're running off a hornblower here with Star Trek. It's, you end up with this veneration of Starfleet, which the original Star TOS doesn't do. There are a lot of occasions in TOS where Kirk and the gang are basically like, our bosses suck. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, that's a whole arc of a mock time. It's, Star it's Kirk being like, I don't actually need to fucking be there. <laughs> That's my, very true. My first officer's died because he's too horny to be left alone. <laughs> I'm going to Vulcan. <laughs> I'm like, That's just the plot of the episode. I got yeah, to help of, my I'm first like, officer out. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I, I like, love Star Trek so much. Is, um, isn't bureaucracy fucking horrible? That's the plot God. of the trouble in Tribbles. Yeah. That TOS is not... It's very good. It's very, like, good at sort of going, here are these power structures. 
they ain't shit sometimes. Like, this is also Trek, like what is Star Trek if not just like pseudo military propaganda and like in the insatiable need to be horny? But, but wow. this is the reason. <laughs> this is the. <laughs> this is it's it's the same reason why every re, not every but ninety five percent of relationships on Star Trek are like baby's first relationship style, right? Which is because the people who, it's because the people who wrote those episodes were all young men, right? And particularly when you get to the 90s and many of them just hadn't had relationships. So when it comes to writing what you know, they didn't know it, so they couldn't write it. Um, but but when it comes but but I think that that kind of principle transposes itself too into other areas, which is particularly by the time you get to the '90s, and especially when the writers who are on their way up, you know, your Brannenbrugers and your and your Ron Moores, etc., who had strong exposure to the original series, you know, Ron Moore idolized Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, right? That sort of idolization of those characters and interpreted through the lens of well, they're Starfleet and therefore the idolization becomes of Starfleet rather than of these individuals. John, to your point, you know, TOS isn't telling you that. It's what pop culture about Star Trek told you in the 70s and the early 80s before the next generation comes on. That's then sucked up and interpreted by your Brian Fuller's and your Ron Moore's of the world and is then passed out as being, by the time you get to the Berman era, this much more of it being less about these fantastic people who are part of this problematic organization to being these fantastic people who are part of this fantastic organization that just so happens to have a bunch of fuckheads who work for it too. I do think it's sort of interesting, um, at least chronologically, I know this isn't production order, that earlier Star Trek and Discovery sort of messes this up because it both takes place in the past of, of, TNG and the future, but Star Trek seems to become more militaristic as it becomes like more militaristic in terms of practicality as it becomes less militaristic in terms of like aesthetics. So like Enterprise, mm -hmm. uh, Clay made the point earlier, was um, not a, like when they first go out, they don't have that huge complement of weapons, and Malcolm Reed is always upset about it. Like when they first go out, they have a laser, but like it's there for like blowing up meteoroids, and they, and they do have nuclear torpedoes. Yeah, and they have a couple of turns, but they I think at one point they only mentioned they mentioned they have like a total of like four that <laughs> they use. Them. They have four. <laughs> <laughs> and like even they're like four pistols. Guys are like not good. Like they mentioned that on several occasions, they're like bulky and like most of the crew doesn't quite know how to use them. Like they like did it in basic training once, but they're like Malcolm, I hate Malcolm so much because he's both very annoying and sometimes right. Because like- Just like the rep, just like Britain. Just uh, like Britain. Worst person you know just made excellent points. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think for Malcolm Reed. I have to make that up. You know what? I can do an edit of that right now. <laughs> he is an interesting character because he, especially in the first two seasons, he's positioned as like, oh, this guy like wants Starfleet to be more military. He's always itching for a fight. And then in season, Enterprise is just such, I think more 
than any other Star Trek so far, at least, is such truly a product of its time. Like all Star Treks are like little time capsules of the era they were made, but Enterprise is just so painfully 9-11. It's insane. <laughs> Fun yeah. fact, Enterprise oh. was originally supposed to premiere on 9-11 and 9-11 pushed <laughs> it two weeks. Yep. Oh my yep. God. Oh it my God. It was supposed that kind of reminds me of what I wanted to say as well about uh, like like Enterprise being like post 9-11. Um, there was that one bit, I believe, in season three when like they have like the Vulcan terrorists, which anytime the word terrorist is used and knowing the context post 9-11. Every yeah. terrorist on Star Trek is correct. That's it, just a fact. Yeah, so it's like every time the word Even terrorist is used, I yes. feel like there's some kind of like Orientalist connotation to it because that is just, that is simply put, that is just what I'm used to. Um, mm-hmm. Just it's always going to be in an Orientalist connotation. And the fact that it is post 9 11 kind of like only reasserts that connotation. Um, and especially with the fact that they're like, oh, these terrorists use bombs. And I'm like, uh, yeah, we get it. <laughs> well, I like, think it. about the analogy of the Cyrenites is a um, pretty good one. Because it's basically it the, Vulcans, yeah, the Vulcans. Vulcans finger pointing and going, oh, it's those guys. They blew your stuff up. And then when Archie goes to Vesca, it's like, we, we didn't do that. They just don't fucking like us. I will give Enterprise a lot of credit for the fact that they introduced the Vulcans, which are, were at that point like a beloved species. And they introduce them as assholes, but they do earn it. Like they're very realistic assholes. They, they eventually by the fourth season, you're like, okay, I, I would argue. And again, I do not want to give the writers of Enterprise any credit for this, um, but I would argue that, like I said earlier about how Enterprise often put the humans in a state of they had less power. The Vulcans are a much better analog for the United States than the humans are. And even in like the Zindi war, I would make the argument that the Zindi are actually a better analog for the United States than the humans are in that they get faulty information that somebody, we don't quite know who, is going to attack them. And so they have to do a preemptive strike. Uh, a dodgy dossier, perhaps. A dodgy dossier, and perhaps a speech in Parliament talking about 45 minutes. I'm just saying that there's, if you're going to take, if you're going to look at season three of Enterprise as a stand in for just generically what happened after 9 11, which it obviously clearly is, the humans are the underdog in that story they were the ones that had and obviously the attack in florida is supposed to be an analog for 9-11 but going to try they try to stop a war and like they are the ones i think it's interesting that when they meet the zindi the zindi are the ones that have to like have conversations among themselves of like which information to trust who like what are the political motivations behind the people that want us to go to war and I think it's interesting that it, it, it was obviously so trying to be a what if instead of going to war with people in the Middle East, we instead talk to them like that's what they were going for mm. that like we could in the future, we could just like negotiate this out. But I think it's a lot more interesting to look at it as 
the Zindi, and if you really want to stretch the metaphor, you could argue that because the Zindi have the like five different species that existed on the same planet, it's like sort of a metaphor for Americans coming from like a lot of different places and like having different perspectives and like trying to come to a universal one. And like, there are the people that are really conservative, like, listen, we've had our home destroyed before. We're not doing it again. Like we need to have this preemptive strike. And then there's people that's like, no, these are like people, like we can talk to them. They're like not that different from us. And I think that was an interesting way to go with it. Again, do not want to give that a yeah, I feel like I feel like Genevieve, you put a lot more thought into this than um, <laughs> I just think <laughs> that if Star Trek was allowed to have my audio commentary, I could fix a lot of it. <laughs> Like, Star Trek is the guy that you see. He's like, he's so disheveled and whatever. And you're just like, I can fix you. I if I just made him. you soup. If I just made you soup, I can fix you. See, this is the, this he is doesn't kind of even the, appreciate the soup. I mean, this is kind of the crux of the why does it matter thing, which is that as, you know, we are content creators and consumers and we have our head cannons and our cannons and the stories we write and the art we make and the conversations we have at one in the morning about random characters. And I think that's more really important. And that que this question of whether Starfleet or not is a military in relation to us as fans, it's kind of like, well, we're aware of it. I think that's important and we can have this conversation. Mm. But... well. Oh, sorry, I don't want to interrupt. I mean, it's like the question is, does that mean we should consume it less or consume it differently? Or is it just important that we just remember it? I think it's important to consume it like differently and like, you know, try and apply different lenses to it. And like, you know, you have to have a certain critical thinking when you're, when you're, especially with a, with, you know, something that deals with like politics so much, you have to be thinking about it critically. Um, Star Trek is actually not political, thank you. Yeah, Star Trek is a, well, I don't know where you would have figured that Star Trek is political. Well, you said it was a On this podcast as well, this apolitical podcast. <laughs> so My apolitical Christian home. I'm sorry, that's right. It's just me and my little like liberal snowflakeisms asserting whatever I think about Star Trek onto the onto the media. I'm sorry, I didn't mean thank to Thank you call. for apologizing. <laughs> I can report on I think it's important to consume consume it critically and recognizing that that's there. And so I do a lot of like mental gymnastics to kind of say, well, it's not really like a military because of a lot of the reasons that we've mentioned, Genevieve especially because as an American, right? Um, but I, I, I tend to kind of view Starfleet as a little bit more like NASA. And you can even see that with the Starfleet of United Earth Enterprise era where like they're named after the space shuttles. Right. Um, but it's like if I were to if I were to remake Star Trek, if I were to do like a spiritual successor, like a science fiction show to like take on that mantle, but change some things that I think are either dated or could, you know, do better science or effects now. Like one of the things I would probably do is like get rid of the military hierarchy of Star Trek in Starfleet. I mean, you can see, especially in like the TNG era with like the bad admirals, that's done for a reason. Like it's meant to say, like, hey you should question authority. If someone's coming to you with like a, a bad thing that they want you to do, you need to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then you see like good leadership in Picard where he's constantly like, okay, what do the heads of my departments think? And he doesn't make a decision unless he's getting advice from like 
other trusted leaders within his community. Because I think looking at it uncritically, something else can happen. And that's, mm. um, so like, I think a lot of people always ask like, why, why, why are there so many conservative fans of Star Trek? Did they just not watch it? Um, and I saw a really good argument by Leon Thomas of the YouTube channel, Rene Renegade Cut. Big and fan. He, yeah, and he pointed out on there that one of the reasons why conservatives might like Star Trek is because everything is from the perspective of Starfleet and Starfleet is a strict military hierarchy. And that kind of hierarchical um, portrayal appeals to that kind of perspective and probably gives you some reasons as to why someone like Ted Cruz would say that James T. Kirk, a character based on John F. Kennedy is a Republican. Huh? Wait. Yeah, Ted Wait, Cruz is actually a Trekkie. Did you not? I'm so sorry. Oh, oh my god. Once, once, once a month, Ted Cruz tweets about Star Trek, and every month I'm upset about it because it gets in my. I've like muted Ted Cruz, but it's like in my mentions. Like, well, actually, like I can oh, like no. tell like clockwork when he's tweeted something because uh, inevitably they get in my mentions about no. it. He, he's a big god. Star Trek fan and a big Simpsons fan because oh, he's very, Lord. he's very, Dude. very good at critically analyzing yeah. what he watches. Because he, he's a fucking idiot. Such a simply put adequate way of saying I, it. I, I also think... need to put context for the fact that I only got into Star Trek in like November 2020. I did Hell not know yeah, about brother. all of this shit. <laughs> So, so I, I think, I think, as with all things Star Trek, right? I mean, this, this is not about the military aspect of it. It's about anything around any particular episode you like or any particular episode you dislike. Something that has always aided me in my appreciation of the oeuvre of of Star Trek is understanding that it is an idealized vision created by very flawed people, and yes. that as a result. Yeah there's going to be a gap. In some cases, a yawning gap between what that idealized version should be and what it's ultimately shown to be. But as long as the people who, the as, as new people come along and continue to make Star Trek, they come at it with the perspective of wanting to continue to be better, right? And what be better means has been reinterpreted throughout the various different generations of Star Trek as society itself and culture has evolved and realized that things were not right and we need to continue progressing. As long as there's this like push behind it of, continuing to try to do better as much as this might ultimately be a corporate product that is still going to be a slave to some of those kind of corporate um, uh, incentives and interests of the company that's making money off of it. But as long as there's still that kind of push and those good intentions, as much as sometimes they might be entirely misplaced or as much as sometimes they might not even be there, that, um, uh, that, that, that it's still ultimately a, a worthwhile product and one that, yes, engage with it critically, yes, criticize it to the hilt when it deserves it, but don't also feel bad about enjoying it just because there are pieces of it that don't necessarily entirely work or don't sort of, you know, fit as well as you might want them to. That the idealized version of it is good, right? That it is something that we should all be striving towards and that the show itself is still trying to strive towards what that idealized version of Star Trek is and should be. And we should continue to help it on that journey because conversations like this are really important because the more we talk about things like this, the more it ultimately kind of enters the 
cultural conversation and the cultural atmosphere that gets back to those flawed people sitting at their laptops, writing scripts and figuring out what the next Star Trek stories are. And so the more that we can help bring them along on this journey of enlightenment, of, of, of congratulating them when they've done something good, of telling them they've done a bad job when they've done something wrong, the more we can ultimately get to a point where Star Trek is not just what we want it to be, but is actually what we want it to be at the same time. That's, that is how I've always felt about the franchise. And I think this topic in particular is one where that's critically important. Yeah, I, one of the reasons I want to talk about this beyond that I like talking about the kind of shit because I've got nothing else going on in my life um, is that it's really, these are things that, people need to talk about. And I think it's, you know, we've had a very rambly discussion, but it's a sort of, it's less about, ooh, you know, here's an S, here are the notes, you get to read up on this. It's more like, I want you to peep the listeners to think about, you know, when you're watching an episode of Star Trek, why are they like this? Beyond the whole, beyond the usual like with Star Trek, why are they like this? Which is watching Spock's brain and going, why are we like this? <laughs> There's sort of more like thoughtfulness as opposed humans. to the horror, which is, you know, this is an ongoing, you know, I'm going to use the language of it, it's an ongoing mission. But part I of that think... is. Sorry. I, I think that, I guess my overall answer to your question is I have found that a lot of, especially like online fights, I'm using air quotes you can't see because it's an audio format but um a lot of fights on star trek like online spaces really come down to some people watch star trek because they really like the narrative and i think it's similar to people that like like like, like i mentioned earlier that really like tng because of its like heady sci-fi concepts there are some people that watch it in order just to purely just to take in that information watch it as an entertainment and that's fine but i think the majority of star trek fans especially ones that would sort of qualify themselves as trekkies a big reason that they're in it is to have discussions like this is because in a lot of ways star trek is just a signal that like if i watched all of this and you watched all this even if we don't come from the same place or the same background or the same experiences We've both watched this show that talks a lot about society and the human condition. And because we've both watched this, that has a definite bent, uh, I would say left bent to it, we can agree on some basic things for the most part. Like we all agree that racism, sexism, homophobia, all that sort of stuff, bad. Uh, we are so. working, we want to work towards a future of generally world peace and diversity and it's just really a, just a signal to be like you are someone that i would want to have a conversation with and star trek is a because we've both watched it we can use that as a starting off point to have those sorts of conversations um and i think a lot of i'm going to use the word negative uh <laughs> interactions that people have online comes when those two groups sort of meet each other and one group is coming from it from a I am using this piece of media to have a conversation and meet people and like have a connection with my fellow humans and other people are coming at it as this is a canonical text 
And I just really like this text. And if anyone wants to deviate from it or talk about it or talk bad about it, I'm going to be upset because I really like it. And I feel like so much online discourse around Star Trek really just boils down to that. Um, and obviously there are atrocious episodes of Star Trek, but I think there's also, you can usually tell what camp a person falls into when you ask them for a bad Star Trek episode, because there are episodes of Star Trek that are bad from a narrative standpoint. And there are episodes of Star Trek that are bad because they either directly harmed the actors making them, or they contributed to like very harmful stereotypes against real people. Code and they on. have like real world <laughs> exactly like there are episodes that have like the kind of person when you ask them for a bad tos episode that says spock's brain versus code of honor are two very different people spock's brain is a baffling piece of television but it's not actually right. the worst the worst episode of the original series is either a lot of troyes or let that be your last battlefield <laughs> yeah Anyone, what was the episode? It was uh, TNG, I believe, season one when Tasha Yar was still alive. That wild Code of Honor. Code of Honor. I, I, think okay. I mentioned it. Yeah. I just okay. spoke and accidentally called Code of uh, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield Code of Honor. I apologize. Confusing the racist episodes. Confusing the racist episode. God, also, any episodes where like the Orions are involved, I immediately like, I tuned the fuck out i've tuned the fuck out you are not about to show me these orientalist green ladies shaking their ass the white men okay but actually uh the women are seducing the men with magic so it's feminist actually you're interested in this topic more okay, the episode of i quit star trek bounty in which genevieve explains how about how that episode of enterprise justifies spurk it does. It does. I'm not, we're not going to go into that more because that's the only good part about Bounty. Everything else is horrible. Anyway, where were we? Um, I'm going to try and round this off. If anybody has any fun, I mean, that's a good final comment, really. So it's kind of like both you, Alex, and Genevieve, is that these discussions are why we have this. And, uh, you know, as NASA said, it's, yeah, it's got to affect how you consume this media. But I don't yeah. think that means that you could go around saying you shouldn't watch Star Trek because it's military propaganda. Because oh, absolutely! Like, like it's kind of like Star Trek. I was bombarded with a shit ton of Orientalism, but you see, my love for a good, tall, sexy space elf kind of helped me push through. Works for some, but it's you know. um, John. Just before you end, I need to do a quick survey on air for accountability. Um, the other people on this podcast, uh, I, I believe I'm correct in saying that none of you are women. That is correct. I am, nope, I am not a woman. Okay, then I have an invoice I need to send John real quick. Oh fuck! <laughs> 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 right, how much do I owe you? Eighty dollars, my friend. No, I bought a new phone. I bought. Would this be different if Olivia made it today? I would love to know this context. Uh, <laughs> I'm, sending, I'm sending the invoice into the group chat so you can see it. I've, I made That's it pretty formal. Olivia was That's so funny. That's deserved. <laughs> it is deserved, but I don't have this money. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Is it the oh only woman tax? <laughs> oh my god! Um, for those unaware, uh, on April fifth, I tweeted. A real invoice. 
I will go That's on any so Star Trek funny. podcast, but if I am the only woman, you need to pay me $20 for every man speaking. Thank you. Um, and I, you can't even say that you didn't see this because, Jack, you responded, quote, sigh, I'll send a check. Um, so I do take check, but I will also accept Venmo <laughs> or PayPal. It does need to be in USD. Oh my uh, god, the take, only... uh, Can I pay you in shit posts? <laughs> I mean, I'm willing to grant a waiver. You have 30 days, my friend. <laughs> a waiver does have to be applied for. I mean, I can send you it in installments. That's fine. Okay. I mean, just make yeah, as long as there's a good faith effort to make the payment, I'm willing to compromise. I'm writing it on the chalkboard here. That's... Uh, so funny. Can't read my writing, but it's, 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 it's there. You know, I think that you are a man of your word, Jack, so I'm gonna... Yeah, I, I know. I... You know, I walked into this one. You did. <laughs> That's so... Oh, my God. God, I'm gonna need a bit to recover from this. This is hilarious. I love this. I love this only woman text. I'm fucking for it. You go, Genevieve. You fucking you gaslight the gatekeep girl boss all you want. Thank you. No offense to any non-women on this podcast. It's nothing personal. I think I think it's fucking hilarious. I didn't think anyone on this podcast would be the kind. Again, just. Gaslight gatekeep girl boss, it is your right. <laughs> well, as of the just, gender that is the backbone of this fandom, uh, I can't believe you let me get away with this. <laughs> it's not, I waited until the end of the podcast, too. So <laughs> I could edit this out, but I could leave it in. I don't know, I don't know whether decisions, I'm going to leave it decisions. in the fact that I think God. But I, you know, I think for matters of honesty, I'm going to leave it in because it'll be hilarious. <laughs> anyway, um, so um, while I figure out how to raise $80, 60 pounds quickly, um, if anyone wants to plug anything, please go ahead now while I um, cry. I have no idea if I should plug um, Star Trek Alterity, which is my little um, fan comic with my own little crew of Star Trek characters, which unfortunately, yes, they are Starfleet. However... Uh, it's more focused on, um, like, you know, exoplanets and, like, how they find exoplanets. And it's, uh, it's a bunch of scientists literally just staying on an exoplanet for a year, see if it's viable or not for colonialism. And it talks about colonialism. Ooh, fun stuff. Uh, if I cannot plug my comic, however, my Twitter is at underscore temp void and I do commissions. I will draw your Star Trek OCs if you give me money. <laughs> and uh, this is Alex. You can find me on Twitter at Alexander T. Perry. And I also host a weekly Star Trek news podcast called Weekly Trek, which is all the Star Trek news for the week in under 40 minutes. Most weeks there's news to talk about. Um, I'm Genevieve. You can follow me on at on Twitter on uh, at this is me whatever if you're uh, basic and boring if you're hot and fun you can follow me on uh, at Star Trek Heathen uh, but be aware that if uh, you don't like my opinions on Star Trek I will block you on that account well we've already concluded that you have the best opinions on Star Trek and you know more <laughs> about the, that. and you know more about the canon than Gene Roddenberry 
That's true. I do know this is a fact. You can research this. I do know more about Star Trek than Gene Roddenberry. Uh, I also, unfortunately, do know more than uh, Leonard Nimoy. There's a lot of people I know more about Star Trek than. I'm getting sad now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a sad one. Um, I uh, I'm Clay. You can follow me at uh, at the uppercase I Constable. No uh, spaces or anything on Twitter. I'm very very bad at Twitter. <laughs> I think you're great I'm, at Twitter. I just reply to things and like you're exactly what I want from the men for Twitter I just have like I I just want to be nice to people and I want people to be nice to me king king behavior I'm the constable because eight years ago I needed an account for io9 and I think a (laughs) picture of Odo as an umpire is really funny that's that's the origin behind that Nothing else to plug. I'm actually really looking forward to that exobiologist comic. I'm gonna I'm gonna check that out for sure. Yeah. It's been um two hours. <laughs> I don't know if I'll cut this in two. I might just yeet it out there on Sunday before I go watch the football. But if you um, cut it in two, that means you have two episodes and you don't have to prepare one later. If you have two episodes, there's a chance I'll double charge you. <laughs> <laughs> adding that as a clause to the invoice that's hilarious you see at the beginning of this you were like oh john you don't need a job you're a child now you see why i need a job (laughs) this shit happens to me i you know what i you know i drank my cup of respect woman juice today i will gladly pitch in my 20 dollars to help that's i really do appreciate that (laughs) true ally same same listen i am it's a, a trans 20 dollars 20 dollars tra- per man 50 dollar minimum god i am i am a trans <laughs> man i understand i understand the plight i understand the plight uh. right i'm gonna check my wallet but um <laughs> until then if you would like to have a go at me on this podcast for making a very large mistake you can find us at quit star trek pod or you could email me, uh, you could email me a picture of a check or a picture of your face laughing at me at iquitstartrick at gmail.com. But until next time, when we return to our regularly scheduled program of Olivia being horrible to me, I've been John. <laughs> I'm Genevieve. I'm Nasser. I'm Alex. I'm Clay. And um, we'll catch you all next time. <laughs>